0: One of my favorite stories uh, concerns a man who found a genie in a bottle. It was just your basic uh, bottled-up genie that granted uh, three requests, two of which the man uh, took immediately. He asked for a Mercedes full of cash. He wanted the trunk and uh, the entire car filled with $100 bills, and uh, the request was immediately granted. He decided to save the third request for a while, got into the driver's seat, began to uh, drive down the freeway, and uh, in his joy uh, began to sing the words of the old uh, advertising jingle, Oh, I wish I were an Oscar Mayer wiener. (laughs) I've always liked that joke because it's... uh, really a parody on life or maybe a parable of life, you spend your whole life building up your body or your firm or uh, trying to amass a fortune or make a name for yourself, build your reputation, and uh, you don't turn into a wiener, you turn up dead. That's one of those hard facts, brutal facts. About life, you 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 spend your whole life for something, and then you die. Um, All you have to do is look around at us to see that we're dying. Our bodies are winding down, and and, uh, time is running out, and they're degrading. And. One of these days, they're going to expire. It's inevitable. The death rate has been a constant 100%, or almost 100%. And C.S. Lewis says, the, uh, uh, the disease of our temporality is incurable. Uh, the, the philosopher in the, in the book of Ecclesiastes points out that there is more reality at a funeral than at a party, because at least at a funeral you face facts. You look at things as they really are. And though I, I have never liked funerals, the, the overall effect of a funeral is, is often very positive and good because people have to face reality. One of these days, the Grim Reaper is going to get us all, and, it, and it's all up with us. And so the question is, uh, is there any hope? Is there anything to live for? Is there any reason to, uh, to live for anything? Why not eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die? But we as Christians believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He put it that way. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, shall live again. And he who lives and believes in me will never really die. you believe this? That was Jesus' question. And I ask the same question to you and, and to myself. I do, I do, and many of you do. And the question is, on what basis do we do we believe it? And that's what I'd like to talk about this morning. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, which is the classic uh, location for a, a study of the resurrection. This is Paul's most exhaustive treatment of this of this theme. Uh, you have to understand the uh, impact this this writing must have had initially and originally. The the Greeks, the Romans knew nothing of uh, of, of the resurrection of, of a body. They, they thought in terms, or at least some of the, of the Greeks, the Platonists, thought in terms of the immortality of the soul. But they had no concept of a body that was raised. So this was new. This was a new kind of good news that uh, Paul describes here. Now, in the first 11 verses of chapter 15, what Paul does is simply state that the resurrection was part and parcel of apostolic teaching. He and all the other apostles preached a resurrection of the body. Now I I make known to you, brethren, the gospel or the good news which I preached to you, which also you received and which also you stand, by which also you are saved. So the content of his preaching was the good news and the consequence of it their salvation. If he says you hold fast the word which I preached to you, if you continue to believe it unless you believed in vain. Now, Paul is not saying here that, that uh, the Corinthians could lose their faith if it was a genuine faith. He's rather asking them to test their faith and see whether or not it's a valid faith or, or was, is it a mere nominal faith like Judas, who looked good on the outside, who seemed to have faith but who had never really committed himself to Jesus as Lord. It's my, my certainty that the New Testament teaches that the truly regenerated, those who have been born again, will persevere to the end. Their faith will be maintained. God will see to it that we believe to the end. But there are people whose faith is shallow and superficial, and it's, as Paul describes here, an empty sort of faith. It's not the real thing, and uh, therefore they need to take stock. Now, that's, that's Paul's point. If you believed it, you will continue to believe it, If you are truly saved, that is, you've been regenerated, you will be saved to the end. For, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The scripture which Paul refers to here is the Old Testament. It's the only Bible Paul and the apostles had. He tells uh, the Corinthians that the Old Testament taught that Messiah would die, which it does in in, in a number of places. Psalm 22 is a predictive uh, description of crucifixion. Isaiah 53 is another place where Messiah's death is uh, is, uh, forecasted. Paul says, I preached that he really died. Jesus really did die. He underscores not only the reality of his death, but the reality of the Incarnation. He took a, a, a real body. It wasn't a make believe body, it wasn't a body that appeared to be human, it was a real human body that was susceptible to death just as our bodies are, and his body died. There was no pulse, no respiration, no brain waves. The only thing left hanging on the on that cross was a corpse. Paul says that's that's a part of the gospel. He died. And secondly, he was buried because that's what you do with dead bodies. They, they degrade. They decay. And so you place them in the ground. He was buried according to scripture. And again, Isaiah 53 predicts that he would be buried with a rich man or in a rich man's tomb. And that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Again, the Old Testament predicts that he, as Isaiah 53 puts, he would prolong his days, he would see his offspring, if he would give up his life as a as a guilt offering. So the old the scriptures, Paul's scripture, predicted that he would he would be raised. So these are the three elements of the gospel which he says were predicted in the Old Testament, in which the apostles preached, in which you be, in which you believe. Jesus died, he was. Buried, and he rose again. He said, these are matters of first importance. And furthermore, he appeared to Cephas. He did not rise in some corner of the ancient world where no one saw him. Numerous people, he said, saw the risen Lord, and they can confirm it. And note how he argues. uh, In verses 1 through 4, he's arguing from Scripture. In uh, the verses that follow, he's arguing from history. He appeared to Cephas, Cephas is the Aramaic uh, word for Peter, Peter the Apostle, first of the the apostles to see the risen Lord, and then to the twelve, the two on the road to Emmaus, and then the ten without Thomas, and then finally the eleven with Thomas there, and then the forty days of post-resurrection ministry where our Lord uh, spent a great deal of time with the apostles they saw him they touched him as John says we handled him the word of life so that for those forty days he, his resurrection was open to investigation he didn't vanish he was there for forty days after that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time most of whom remain until now but some had fallen asleep the, the the weightiest evidence that can be adduced for anything in history is that of, of a reliable eyewitness. That's, the historians always rely on that sort of evidence. You can't run history through again. You can't uh, reenact the signing of the Declaration of Independence or the Battle of Hastings. You have to take the word of people who were there. Reliable eyewitness. That, me, that's, the, that's the sort of evidence that historians rely upon all the time. Best evidence possible is the witness of someone who was there on the scene. And Paul says there were 500 people who saw Jesus, and most of them are still alive today, and I can give you their addresses or their telephone numbers, and you can call them up, and you can corroborate my witness. These were not people who merely heard the testimony of the apostles. They saw the risen Lord. Now, this was written 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead. Now, you stop and think for a moment of the weight of that evidence. Uh, there are a number of rumors uh, about today that, that John F. Kennedy is alive, living on Onassis' yacht, or being sustained artificially on a Caribbean island. There are all sorts of rumors. But uh, no one has said, uh, I've seen him, I've talked to him, I've touched him. They're all second-hand or third-hand uh, reports and rumors. Paul is saying 500 people saw him, and most of them are still alive. You, you can look them up and ask them. And furthermore, this sort of thing was preached that he was raised from the dead and that these people saw him. And uh, the best possible way to refute this argument would be to produce the body. If if you wanted to establish beyond any question that John F. Kennedy was not uh, living today, you could uh, perhaps for some reason of national security uh, get a a court uh, order disinterring his his body and uh, produce it, and that would prove beyond any doubt that John F. Kennedy was dead. They could not produce a body, but what they could produce was 500 people who had seen him, and talked to him and had him over for dinner and had fished with him and walked with him along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. The evidence was irrefutable. The evidence for the existence of, of, the, of the fact of the resurrection is better than the evidence for any other fact in history which which historians will accept. You know why people disbelieve the, the resurrection? Is not because the evidence is bad. It's, it's because they have an anti-supernatural bias their worldview won't permit them to believe in something like a resurrection it's a moral issue it has nothing whatever to do with historical evidence or the amount of intelligence that a person has or or training or any of these other factors it's a moral issue paul says the evidence is good you can call these people up and they'll they'll confirm that he's he's alive and then Paul says he appeared to James who was Jesus' half-brother who was a hostile witness who did not believe in Jesus until the resurrection. And last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also for I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle because they persecuted the church of God. You know what Paul was doing when he saw the risen Lord? He was on his way to Damascus with letters from the high priest in Jerusalem giving him permission to imprison Christians. He was trying to to stamp out the Christian church. He was trying to stop Christians from proclaiming the resurrection. He was not a positive witness. He wasn't expecting to see Christ. He wasn't looking for it. And the Lord appeared. Changed the whole course of his life. Paul says, By the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. That as I labored in preaching. And what he preached was the resurrection. Whether then it was I. I, Paul. I, Paul. Or they, the other apostles, so we preach, and so you believe. And if you read the book of Acts, uh, you'll see that that was was precisely the case. The apostles preached the resurrection in the city where Jesus rose, where his dead body could have been produced, where witnesses were still uh, living, and uh, they could not refute their witness. Paul says, we preached it, and you believed it. Now, uh, in verses 12 through 19, Paul raises uh, a series of hypothetical questions. He wants us to imagine what would, be, what would be true if Jesus did not rise from the dead? Would we have any Christianity left? There are some who would tell us today that the resurrection is not really necessary to the proclamation of the gospel. What matters is the ethical and moral content of the gospel. The uh, Sermon on the Mount the upper room discourse, the things that Jesus said, those are the things that matter. His teaching. And what we must do is demythologize the, the Gospels, take all of the supernatural elements out because those were add-ons. The, the church added those things later. What we need to do is go back to the historic teaching of, of Jesus. Paul says, let's do that. Let's, let's take out the resurrection, which is the grand miracle, and see what uh, what's left. If... Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. It's empty. And your faith is empty of content. You're believing a lie. The resurrection is a giant hoax. It's all humbug. Forget the whole thing. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed with reference to God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. The apostles are all liars. And since all we know of Jesus' teaching is based upon what the apostles wrote, then we have to discount everything Jesus taught. We can't accept the Sermon on the Mount because we don't. We don't know what Jesus actually said. All we have is the apostles' report of what Jesus said. So the Gospels are invalid. We don't know what Jesus taught. We have no understanding of the ethical content of the Gospel because the apostles are all liars. Because the apostles did not say, we heard that Jesus rose from the dead. They said, we, we touched him. We talked to him. We ate with him. We lived with him for 40 days. Furthermore, Paul says in verse 16, If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your, your sins. There's no answer to the guilt of the past. There's no power for living life in the present. You have no resources to live the Christian life. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Our loved ones are obliterated. There's no hope of seeing them again. As if we have only hoped in Christ in this life, we are of all men most to be pitied. Or like the old uh, sour poet Swinburne, who who wrote, "From too much love of living, from hope and fear set free, we thank whatever uh, we thank with brief thanksgiving whatever gods may be that no one lives forever, that dead men rise up never." That even the weariest river runs somewhere out to the sea. There's just nothing to live for. Life is hopeless. The Christian faith is a is a great hoax, and we ought to to give our lives to unmasking this this thing. and And let's go on and live life for right now, because as Bias, Joan Bias says, we live in a world of no tomorrows. This is all there is. Let's stop playing church. and Dismantle the, the buildings or turn them into supermarkets or or use them for museums. And let's dismiss all the preachers and, and the choirs. And let's uh, put our New Testaments in the section of, the, of our university and public libraries that are, that are set aside for the study of, of history of religions, but they have no relevance for us today. Not even the Sermon on the Mount. Get rid of the whole thing. Because without the resurrection, we, there is no gospel. We have no faith. But uh, Paul says to the contrary, Christ has been raised from the dead. That's the answer that that overshadows all the hypothetical questions that he raises in verses 12 through 19. He has been raised from the dead. The verb tense that he uses suggests a, a state of being. It's a fact based upon the Old Testament scriptures, based upon apostolic preaching, based upon the evidence of history, it's real. It really happened. Jesus burst out of that, that tomb in a redeemed body and became the first fruits of those who, who are asleep. The first fruits was a 10% off of the top offering that the Israelites gave according to law. They took the top 10% of their, of the, of their uh, products. And they offered that up to God as a sign that the whole thing belonged to him. And what Paul is saying is that that our Lord is the first fruits from the dead. He was the first to rise from the dead. as sort of a down payment, an an agreement, a guarantee that we're going to rise with him. He's the first in order, as as Paul tells us. In verse uh, 21, since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, Adam is the one who who created the problem. He introduced sin and death into the world, but Jesus is the one who solved the problem of death. So also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. That's us. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead is the guarantee that, that we will. And then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, uh, when he delivers up the kingdom, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that, that will be abolished is death. The, the great enemy of, of the human race is death. The, the world is, uh, is in the grip of a great fear. Everyone knows that that they have to face extinction one of these days. Their death is coming up. And that's what puts pressure on us to achieve something in this life. We don't have long. We just have a few years to make our lives count. That's why we wear watches and we keep calendars on the on the wall because we're pressured repeatedly by time to do something significant. We only have a, a short time. And I've pointed out before how much energy and time and and money is spent trying to stave off the the effects of death. Our entire fa- defense budget and uh, all of the uh, the money that we put into health clubs and and diet foods, and cosmetics, all the gym cracks and doodads that we that we buy to keep ourselves looking a little bit better, or a little bit longer. None of it works very long, very well. Uh, someone said, "A little powder, a little paint makes a girl look like she ain't." But it uh, doesn't work long. We, we, are, we are degrading. We're running down. And despite all the time and effort that we spend trying to stave off death, it's inevitable. The death rate remains constant. We know it. And it stands uh, at the end of our life as our great enemy. It frustrates us. We know it's not natural. It's not right. Shouldn't be. We were made for more than this. As Ecclesiastes puts it, God has put eternity in the heart of man. We have this desire for eternity, but we're frustrated because we're creatures of time and space, and we're limited and thwarted and uh, kept from realizing our potential. But Paul says that enemy has been done to death. Christ has been victorious over death. He beat it. And uh, in verse 27, he has put all things in subjection under his feet, even death. But when he says all things, uh, but when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepting who put all things in subjection, subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. It's difficult to understand precisely what what Paul is saying in that paragraph, except we can conclude that that there is a time span before God once for all solves the ultimate problem of death. People will die now until uh, until our Lord comes back. But despite the fact that we have to face death, death is no longer a great enemy. He's removed its sting. Death is still there, but he's removed its sting. And in time, he will remove death. Uh, himself And all things are subjected to God. Now, uh, verses 29 through 34 are difficult to understand. It's an appeal, which Paul makes uh, from the fact of the resurrection, but it contains a very unclear reference in verse 29. Otherwise, he says, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? As you know, this is the passage that the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uses to undergird their doctrine of baptism for the dead. They have an enormous uh, uh, system of uh, uh, discovering the names of of deceased uh, relatives and then being baptized for them in order to introduce them into the kingdom. It's based on on this passage. I can only say this is a very difficult passage to interpret. Nowhere else in the New Testament is this idea of baptism for the dead presented to us. And for myself, I think what Paul is saying is that he's, he's referring to the practice of being baptized to replace those who had gone on in death. It's like a battlefield where the warriors fall and others step into the ranks to take their place. People were losing their lives for the sake of Christ, or they were dying natural deaths. Others were accepting Christ and being baptized as a sign of that uh, acceptance of Christ. And their baptism, in effect, caused them to re- uh, permitted them to replace those who had gone on. And that's all Paul is saying. Essentially, what he's arguing is that it would be absurd to become a Christian if becoming a Christian means that you have no hope. Why are people becoming Christians if there's nothing after, after, uh, after life? And furthermore, or after death, excuse me. And furthermore, in verse 30, why are we also in danger every hour? Uh, in other words, why should we suffer persecution as a Christian if there's nothing to the faith? If it's empty, if there's no hope after death. Why endure the, the beatings and the uh, the upset of life that come, come to those who, who are believers if there's nothing more? I protest, brethren, he says, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. I'm I'm willing to submit to persecution and to mis, to mistreatment because he says it is it is true. My faith is real. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and drink, for tomorrow we die. This was the Epicurean philosophy. That was one school of thought in Corinth at, at, at at that time. The Epicureans were materialists. They believed that there was nothing after death. The body dissolves, and so the only reasonable philosophy of life is to eat, drink, and, marry, and be merry because tomorrow you die. If we're passengers on the Titanic, you, you might as well go first class. Uh, if we only go around once, you might as well go for all the gusto. That's what the Epicureans were saying. And that's the only reasonable uh, uh, lifestyle to adopt if there's no afterlife. If, he says, the dead are not raised, let us eat. And drink for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Don't be uh, don't be deceived by this philosophy. It's not so. Bad company corrupts good morals. Here he's quoting from a, a pagan, uh, poet Menander, who argued that if there is no immortality, then there's no morality. If there's no life after death, then there's no reason to be moral in this life. He was not a, not a Christian philosopher at all. He was a pagan philosopher. But Paul says he's right. He hit on the truth. If there's nothing, nothing after death, then there's no reason to live righteously or morally. But, and Paul says that sort of bad company, uh, associations with those who teach that there is nothing after death, uh, will corrupt your morality. Become sober minded as you ought and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. The world around us is filled with people that are that are empty and frustrated and afraid of, of death and who have no, no reason for living. Paul says you need to, to understand that we have something to say to those around us that gives them hope. So don't associate with those that have denied the the truth of the resurrection. Believe what the apostles are saying. Stop sinning, because some do not have the knowledge of God. And then in verses 35 and following, he answers a question that apparently was being raised in Corinth. Some will say, to the contrary... How are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? Fools, he says. Uh, Paul's answer is so sharp, it leads me to believe that this question was not raised from honest motives. Uh, There are people, we've all run across them, who raise objections to the Christian faith, uh, questions that uh, they, they question certain things that seem highly improbable to them, and then argue from the difficulty of uh, finding an answer to the improbability of, of the truth of the Christian faith. For example, they, they raise the question of the Trinity. How can three things be one? How can one thing be three? And then argue from the difficulty that we have in answering a question like that to the conclusion that, uh, that the Christian faith is invalid. Now, apparently, that's, that's what they were doing. They were raising a question about the form or shape of the resurrection body. What what is God going to do with those who uh, are victims of catastrophes whose remains have been scattered, uh, whose uh, dust has been mingled with the dirt of uh, with the with the soil? How will God get all of the parts of people back together and construct uh, a resurrection body? That's the sort of question you hear uh, you hear frequently. Well, he. He uh, uses an interesting argument beginning in verse 36. That which you sow, he says, does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wishes, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh. All flesh is not the same flesh. There is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another flesh uh, of fish. I hope you know that. If you don't, I'm not going to go hunting with you. (laughs) Flesh is different. There is fish flesh. There's bird flesh. There's elk flesh. There's cow flesh. Humans have bodies, you look out over a crowd like this, and there's a marvelous diversity. Everybody is different. No one looks precisely the same. You'll never find anyone in the world who looks precisely like uh, you. And as you look at all of the bodies that God has created, there's there's a continuity there, but there's remarkable creativity and, and diversity. There are different kinds of flesh. And then as Paul goes on to argue, you look up at the sky... And you notice that the stars have one sort of uh, shape and the sun has another and the glory and glory. There's varying glory among the heavenly bodies. The sun has greater glory than the stars and the stars have greater glory than the planets. And uh, what Paul is saying is that uh, God is infinitely creative and capable and uh, able to create bodies as he wills. His argument is summed up in verse 38. God gives it a body just as He wishes. He is sovereign. And He is perfectly capable of creating bodies that fit into their environment. He gives a body, a bird, a certain type of body because it has a certain environment to fly in. He gives a fish another kind of body because it has an environment, a, a watery environment to live in. And what Paul is saying is that when we arrive in the into the spiritual dimension, into heaven, God will give us a body that's suitable for that environment. And Paul says, I don't know what it's going to look like. Perhaps it will be round and we'll roll around heaven all day. Who knows? (laughs) I don't know. He said, I'm just trusting God's goodness. God knows what's right. And he is perfectly capable of creating a body that is suitable for its environment. And that's why he calls this question, you're a fool. Anybody who opens his eyes and looks around sees what marvelous uh, capabilities God has. He can do anything. His his creation is perfection. And so we don't need to worry about what sort of body we're going to have. That's God's problem. He'll give us a body that is suitable for the environment for which we will live eternally. Here, uh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. There we will have a body that is equal to the demands of the Spirit. And Paul describes it in uh, some small way in verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. that That is, it is subject to decay. Disease cripples it. It loses its elasticity. It loses its efficiency. And the older you get, the more that becomes... Uh, true it is raised an imperishable body immune to decay it is sown in dishonor it is raised in glory it is sown in weakness it is feeble when it is sown in the ground it is raised in power it is sown a natural body that is a body under control of the soul that's the term that, that Paul uses It's soulish, it's subject to the moods of the soul, it's subject to the bad genes that were implanted uh, in us, it's subject to weakness, it has raised a spiritual body. And then what follows is a long parenthetical parenthetical explanation that concludes in verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. We have an earth suit now that's adapted to this environment When we see the Lord, we will have a heavenly suit that is suited for its environment there. God will give us a body out of his creative ability that will be just right for the future that that lies ahead of us. Now, in verse 50, Paul is coming to the conclusion of his argument. And uh, he tells us in this verse that... Not only is death imminent and inevitable, death is necessary, or at least some change in our bodies are necessary. Since we're going to a new environment, our bodies have to be changed. There are two ways, Paul says, they will be changed. Verse 50, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But I tell you a mystery, something we could not know except uh, by revelation. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Everyone has to be changed, he says, but some will not sleep. In other words, the Lord will come back before some die. Now, Paul apparently thought that he would be alive when the Lord came back. That seemed to be his uh, hope all through his life. Uh, He never does assert uh, without any qualification that he will be here, but that was always his hope. And uh, what Paul is saying is that there are two classes of people. When the Lord comes, there are those who are alive and waiting for him, and there are those who are dead. And those who are alive, he says, will be changed. And those who are dead will also be raised and changed, verse 52, in a moment... In the twinkling of an eye, that is, in the wink of an eye, instantaneously, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound when our Lord comes back to receive his own, and the dead will be raised imperishable. Those that have been buried will be raised and given a new body that is imperishable. And we, that is, those of us who are alive, will be changed, for this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. And when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed, swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Quotes from both Isaiah and Hosea, two prophets that predicted that someday Messiah would solve the problem problem that had plagued the human life the, the human race from the very beginning of time that of death he's the only one who could and he took the sting out of death in other words death no longer is something to fear no one particularly wants to die but it's nothing to fear he has removed the, he has removed the fear of death and as a matter of fact he has made it a positive thing because as he has concluded we must, be changed this mortal must put on immortality God has to do something to our bodies to fit us for heaven and so death rather than something that terrorizes us becomes a door to another sphere of experience which as Paul puts it is far better and that's why when we put someone in the tomb in the grave in a uh, at a funeral we don't weep for them we weep for ourselves We'll miss them. But they, they have it much better, as Paul puts it. Now, his conclusion. In verse uh, 56, the sting of death is sin. It's guilt that makes us fear death. And the power of sin is the law. It's the law that spells out the nature of sin. But thanks be to God who gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gave us victory over the law, its condemning effects. He frees us from the consequences of sin, from the consequences of the law and our failure to uphold the law. We're set free from the guilt of the past. We're given power to live for the future and we're given hope so that when we face death, we can face it with open arms and know that we're simply walking into, 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 into our Lord's presence. Therefore, therefore, this is Paul's conclusion. My beloved brethren, Be steadfast. Stick to it. Stay with it. Don't give up. Don't stop pursuing God and His righteousness. Don't be preoccupied with your single state and, and, and feel that if you don't find a mate, you're forever going to be frustrated and your whole life will be ruined. Don't stop working on your marriage. Don't give up just because it's hard. Because, as Paul puts it, this uh, brief momentary affliction is working for us an exceeding weight of glory. When the whole world around us is saying, you've got to live. You've got to get rid of that that mate and find somebody else who will satisfy you and, and make life meaningful for you. Paul says, no, be steadfast. This isn't all there is. There's more coming. Be unmovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now by the work of the Lord, he's not talking about uh, so-called uh, Christian work necessarily in doing church things. He's talking about the pursuit of God, getting to know him and love him and worship him and living out his character and his life, bringing other people into a relationship with him. That's, that's the work of God that we ought to be pursuing, whether it's inside the church and in the formal organization of the church or outside, in some informal capacity. Understanding what life is all about. keeps helps us keep perspective, keep our eye on the goal. We don't think this is all there is. We don't go around once and so we live for all the gusto. We don't live for money because you can't take it with you. We don't live for fame and fortune and approval and appreciation in this life. We don't have to because there's more coming. We don't live, as, as Joan Baez said, in the world of no tomorrows. This isn't all there is. This is just a brief interlude, 70 years perhaps, give or take a a few years, in which God gives us time to grow, to know him, to grow in that relationship, and to live his life out to the world, and then we're going to see him. And we're going to look back, like Paul did on this uh, short span of life, and say it was worth it. What I have now is incomparable to the small amount of suffering that, that I experienced. He's steadfast, unmovable against opposition, against people who disbelieve, against secular philosophy that tells us that we Christians do not know what we're talking about. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil, and and the word that he uses here is a word for very heavy labor, strenuous labor, your toil is not in vain in the Lord. This is working for us, Paul says, an exceeding weight of glory. A year or so ago, I told you, I think, or at least I told the men on Wednesday morning uh, about my friend John Landreth, who died just this past year from cancer. John was one of the best friends I ever had. And uh, uh, John uh, was, in, in one year, he lost almost everything that most of us think is important. He lost his job. He had a a very good job as a salesman for a a pneumatic tool company. He made $100,000 the last year he worked for that company. He lost his job. He lost his wife. He lost his children for a short time. And uh, he lost his health. He he discovered that he had uh, cancer, and it was terminal. Uh, I, through the kindness of the men in the Wednesday morning class, I was able to fly down to see him shortly before he died. And uh, he was at Stanford Medical Center where he was undergoing chemotherapy, and we had arranged to meet there because uh, that was he just happened to be there on the day that I, I flew to San Francisco. Got off the plane, went down to Palo Alto, walked into the waiting room. The room was full of uh, cancer patients, most of them waiting for therapy, most of them terminal. John was sitting in a, in a, in a chair with a legal pad on his lap, making notes when I walked in. He saw me across, across the room, it was about as far as from here to that door, and he says, Roper, come in. I don't think he ever knew what my first name was. I was always just Roper. Come here. He, he said, I'm planning my funeral. And every head in that room popped up. His, most of these people were terminal. We all are, of course, but they knew they were <clears throat> And we sat and we planned his funeral. And one of the things he wanted to do at the end was to sing the hallelujah chorus because, as he put it, he was going to go out in a blaze of glory. And uh, everyone in the waiting room listened to us while John planned his funeral. He said, I want this verse and I want this song sung, and and this is what I want you to say. And and we went through the uh, entire uh, funeral service. And the nurse Back into him, and he had to go in for therapy, and he left the notes behind for me to look at. And as he uh, walked out of the door, a woman sitting right across from me leaned over and said, "My my husband is in there. He he's dying." And he said, "She said, I wish he and I had the faith that that man had." And he gave me a chance to share the gospel with her, and basically the whole waiting room, because they were all listening in. But but John was was that he had that kind of, of outlook, that sort of perspective. On life. He didn't fear death. He didn't want to die. A vital, vigorous man. Uh, Forty-five, he had much of his life ahead of him. He didn't want to go, but he didn't fear it. Because our Lord had taken away the sting of death. And he could go out as he put it in a, in a blaze of glory. And and live his life those last months, sharing the gospel with people and ministering to others uh, who, who were in the same condition as he. That's what Paul means by the victory that we have through Christ we don't need to fear death he's he's removed the fear of death he's replaced it with a great victory and that gives us a perspective on life not to live for now and amass money and fame and fortune and, and to live for ourselves but uh, to live for the one who bought us and redeemed us and redeemed our bodies as well let's pray Father we uh, we thank you again for this this reminder of the truth how easily we forget how quickly we're seduced by the the media and by advertising that convinces us that the world is is made up of an accumulation of things and if we just purchase the right uh, things that we'll be we'll be happy and we thank you that we can that we can see things as they really are to be used, but not, to, but not to be accorded that that sort of status, and uh, to to put our faith and our confidence and trust in things that are real and that last and that count. Help us, Lord, in the years that uh, that You've allotted to us to be steadfast and unmovable, and to abound in in the work of the Lord. Not merely to do what we what we have to do and do our duty, but but to abound in it, to give ourselves fully, to pour ourselves out in service to others and uh, to to be your instruments, to bring knowledge to those who have no knowledge of God. Keep us from sinning, Lord, by, by believing that this is all there is and living for these things. And help us, Lord, to be the kind of men and women who see things as they really are, and who go through this world with joy and with confidence and and live on the basis of the truth. Use us, Father, in this way, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.